Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Welcome to Real Life. Again, if you're here for the first time, I'm Jim. Uh, What we do here on Sunday mornings as we gather is we sing songs to God, we pray to God, we listen to God's word, uh, and we are family together. And so I am glad we get to be here again this Sunday morning. Then Christmas is broken out in this room. Uh, The season is coming. And uh, so I thought it'd be neat as over the next few weeks as we prepare for Christmas to talk about some of the surprise teachings of Jesus. Because really at the heart of the Christian story is the fact that Jesus was a surprise to humanity, that God showed up, that the God who made us, the God who we had run away from, nonetheless showed up and absolutely loved us. Uh, and as I was preparing for this series, I was, I was reading some of the teachings of Jesus. Teachings, if you grew up in church, teachings that you've heard over and over again. And I, I was reminded of what a surprise some of them are. I mean, some of the teachings of Jesus, we just kind of take as normal. We've settled into our our context here, and we we take our understanding of those teachings to be normal. But when you really read them, you kind of look around and you go, wait a minute, I think he meant something different than what everybody else is, is doing. And so as we get ready for Christmas, I want to look at some of the surprise teachings of Jesus. Surprises are important because they they rattle your normal. They rattle your normal. And, uh, and we need surprises in our life. And sometimes surprises are great. Uh, have, has anybody ever thrown a surprise birthday party for you? Have you ever had a surprise birthday? I heard a disgruntled no over here. So <laughs> I threw a surprise birthday party for my wife on her 30th birthday. And that was, um, let me see how many years ago that was. Two years ago. That was two years ago. Nice save. That was close. Two years ago. And uh, I remember I threw her a surprise birthday party. I, I, did, I told her we're just going to go out to dinner together for your birthday. And we got in the car and we're driving past a flower store. And I said, hey, uh, I've got, I ordered some flowers. We're going to run in the flower store over here and pick up some flowers. So I parked the car. We get out of the car. We walk up to the door. And on the, the door of the flower store is a sign that says, Closed. And she looks at me, and it wasn't, it wasn't a hate stare. It was one of those kind of, I'm going to be stuck with this for the rest of my life stares. And I grabbed both of her hands, and I said, wrong door. And I pulled her down to the next door. The next door over was Chuck E. Cheese. And I burst through the doors of Chuck E. Cheese with her in tow, and 50 of our friends jumped out and said, surprise! And there was a DJ, and we danced, and we played skee-ball, and we had some not very good pizza. And... But it was great because reliving the vintage years of your childhood when you're 30 is still kind of awesome. And so that was a good surprise party that we had. And sometimes surprises are great. Sometimes surprises are wonderful that way. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes surprises are really hard. If you go through a, a layoff or a sudden sickness or, or death or, uh, you know, the worst kind of surprise we have around here all the time is a car crash. That really is a surprise. You know, you're driving down the freeway, my room, but surprise, here I am. And you get to meet somebody. And... Um, Sometimes surprises really are off-putting because it makes you think the world is out to get me. Maybe it's not as safe as I thought it was. But sometimes, sometimes surprises are beautiful. Uh, one kind of surprise that I just love is, is comedy. 
Uh, I love uh, C.S. Lewis's definition of comedy. Uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he says, comedy is a sudden perception of incongruity. And I like that def definition. It's a sudden realization that things aren't quite the way you thought they were. They aren't quite right. And that's what comedians do. They don't ever give you new information. A comedian never teaches you anything. They just help you see what was right in front of your eyes all this time that you never quite saw the way it is. And that's what comedians do. They surprise you with the obvious. Uh, and so sometimes surprises are wonderful because they do just that. And so I want to look at some of the surprise teachings of Jesus. And I think really, if you get into the heart of Jesus' teachings, some of them really are going to be surprising, even if you grew up in church, even if you've read the Bible a hundred times, some of Jesus' teachings are going to surprise you. And the reason I think that is because I look at the life of Jesus and the people who disliked him most, the people who misunderstood him the most were the most religious people. The people who knew the scriptures best were the people who didn't recognize Jesus. They were literally reading a book of the Jewish scriptures that predicted the coming of a Jewish Messiah, and they didn't recognize him when he stood right in front of them. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus walked in this room here this morning, if we would recognize him. If the things he said and the things he did weren't so off from what we consider normal that we wouldn't be surprised by him again. So I want to get into the heart of the teachings of Jesus because I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to know the law well and get the spirit wrong. Uh, getting Jesus wrong will cost you eternity. So this is an important one. I want to get this one right. So uh, open in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at John chapter 8 this morning. Uh, and as we get ready for that, I want, I want to, I'll tell you why I think we tend to get God wrong. It actually boils down to metaphors. It actually boils down to the things that we think about God and the way we think about God. A metaphor is just a comparison between two things. You know what metaphors are. We use metaphors all the time in the English language. Juliet is the sun. That's a metaphor, right? Or the middle school classroom was a zoo, right? Anybody who works in a school knows the metaphor of the classroom being a zoo. Or uh, the Lord is my shepherd is a metaphor. Anytime we think about something by thinking about something else, we've, we've created a metaphor. And there are theologians out there, there are Christian thinkers and philosophers who will say, God is so different from humanity that the only way we can describe God is by using metaphors, is by comparing him to something that we do know, because he's so different than us. And that makes good sense. You, you, already, you already know how this works. This works in, in, in real life. Uh, if you read the... Um, the, the label on a bottle of wine and listen to how they describe the flavor of wine. It's all metaphors because that's the only way to describe it. It's a black currant flavor, right? And I'm thinking, I don't think I've had that either, right? Or, or try to de uh, describe chocolate to somebody who's never had chocolate. You can only do it by comparing it to other things because it's a unique flavor. You can say it's sweet, but that doesn't, that doesn't capture it because sugar is sweet and chocolate is better than sugar. So... So there's some things you can only talk about with metaphors. This is true in science as well. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, who's a philosopher of science, says that there are certain levels of science that we can only describe by comparing to something else. Quantum physics, which I know nothing about, uh, is, is something we only know about through complex mathematical calculations, but there's nothing we can touch or see or smell or feel to, to describe quantum physics. We only can talk about it by comparing it to other things. We talk about it through metaphors. And so then Jesus walks the earth, and Jesus, it says in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus always taught them by using parables. And a parable is just an extended metaphor. It's just a story that compares one spiritual tooth, truth to a physical reality. So when Jesus wants to describe heaven, 
He usually begins by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he draws from the context of his listeners. And he talks about sheep and goats and fathers and sons and families, and he compares it to something they know. He takes a spiritual truth, which is intangible, and he compares it to something physical, which is tangible. When we gather around and we break bread and we pour the cup, we use physical, physical realities as a metaphor for spiritual truths. And so Jesus always taught them using parables. The reason I think the Pharisees got him wrong is because they had a wrong metaphor for God. And many Christians in our world today, maybe some of us here, have wrong metaphors for God. We think about God using the wrong comparisons. Now, admittedly, I've just written, uh, just published a book about metaphors and about metaphors that we use for the church and the pastor, some of which are terrible, some of which are very good. Uh, but, uh, but metaphors are on my mind. Uh, uh, I, think, I think sometimes we have a wrong metaphor for God and that confuses everything else. So as we look at the story of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, I anticipate that we will be surprised uh, by some of, the, some of the ways he teaches because we've got a wrong metaphor for God uh, in, our, in our minds. The reason we have wrong metaphors for God is because there are only two sources of information that we have about God as we're growing up. Before we get into the Bible, before we read the real source, the two comparisons we have for God are our parents and our peers. Our parents, when you're a little kid, are these great, big, powerful, all-knowing beings that you trust and depend on. And if they're good parents, then when you go to the Bible and you read God is our father, that's a very easy transition to make. But if you had a terrible father, if you had a hard relationship with your father, it, it's really hard to transition to that metaphor of God as father. If you had a hard relationship with your father, then going to God our father is, is a challenging one. Uh, likewise, you might have peers, you might have relationships with other people who call themselves followers of Jesus. Uh, sometimes the most preachy and most religious Christian friends you have are not necessarily very good living examples of what Jesus is like. And they are for you a metaphor for Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus is like, you may well logically look towards people who are Christians. I remember being at a party one time, at a dinner party, and there was this woman uh, standing around and uh, talking about all the things she didn't like about her church. And then she started talking about her pastor. And she started talking about all the things she didn't like about her pastor. And in my head, I'm thinking, but gossiping is a spiritual activity. But she kept going on. And after a while, after she's gotten all this off her chest, she says to me, and what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, well, good for you. And then she physically walked away. Like that was, she literally just walked another. Now, sometimes the best analogies we have for God, the best comparisons we have for what Jesus is like are people who say they follow Jesus. And sometimes they're not very good examples. So we get in mind images of what God is like based on things like our parents and our peers, and that can steer us in wrong ways. But when we get to the real teachings of Jesus, if we can, if we can reconsider how we think about God, we may be surprised by his teachings again. We're going to read from the Gospel of John chapter 8 today, uh, starting at verse 1. And this is a, a famous story in the life of Jesus, an interaction that uh, he had with someone that was a surprise to everyone. As we go to the text together, let's pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds to your, your word and to your will. Uh, shake the cobwebs from our eyes if we, have, uh, if we have wrong thoughts about you, if we have misunderstood you. Uh, shake those cobwebs from our eyes and help us to see clearly. By the power of your spirit, may we know you. May we walk with you. May we love you. 
God, it's, it's only as you call us that we come. So call us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Listen to the word of God. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So this is now in the middle of Jerusalem. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were religious lawyers. They knew God's law, and they applied God's law in all the cases that came before them. So they interpreted God's law for society. They were religious lawyers of the day. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Uh, and this is, this is correct. In the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, the, the uh, punishment for adultery is execution. And it's by, by stoning. They would throw rocks at the person until they died. And so they've, they've caught this woman in adultery and bring them before, bring her, they bring her before Jesus. And they say, the law says uh, she should be put to death. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a question, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now let's look at why this is a trap, because this is actually brilliant. This is actually, the, the Pharisees knew exactly what they were doing. They were good lawyers. They, they knew how to create a case and ask questions that put Jesus on the spot in a way that would be hard to get out of. Because if he says in this case, you're right, the people are going to turn against him. And that's what they want. Jesus has now got a, a following of all kinds of people who love him because he loves them. He sides with the outcasts and the underdogs, the rejects of society, the people that none of the other religious teachers will pay attention to. They're all following after Jesus. They love him and he loves them. And the Pharisees can't stand it because Jesus is not doing the kinds of things that a good Pharisee does. Jesus is hanging out with exactly those kinds of unclean, dirty, um, immoral people that the Pharisees have been trying to get rid of. And here Jesus is making friends with all of them. He's doing the exact thing that they don't want him to do. And, and in the midst of doing that, he's got all kinds of people watching him. He's a bad influence on everyone. He's going to pollute their clean and holy people. So they don't like Jesus. Now, if they can get him to turn on that woman, the people will abandon him. The people say, well, I guess he's not really on our side anyway. He's just like the Pharisees. That's what they want. They want the crowds to go away because, because they've got the law right. The law says the punishment for adultery is execution, and they want Jesus to side with them. Or he can side with her and say, no, that's not what the law says. That's clearly what the law says. They're clearly right on this. They know what they're doing. And if he rejects the law, they can take him instead of her. They can they could potentially put him to death for rejecting the law. And that's what they want. So it's a great trap. It's a brilliant trap. Either they're going to get him or the people are going to reject him. That's what they want. Uh, and so Jesus now responds. Verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Uh, now, don't put too much thought into what he was writing. I've heard some really bad sermons speculating about what he was writing on the ground here. That, that's, that's not the point. I think what Jesus is doing is creating a, a pregnant pause. He's creating a moment of silence in a very tense situation. He bent down to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, 
Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Okay, so here's what's going on. In the first century world of rabbinic Judaism, the way the rabbis would learn the law and teach the law is to ask each other questions about it. They would read the scriptures, and then one of them would ask a question. And the others would, would think about it and muse about it, and they'd answer back with another question. And they would ask each other questions back and forth, and whichever rabbi could ask the most profound or the most thoughtful or the most unanswerable question, he was considered the wisest of the rabbis. There's actually kind of a, uh, there's a kid's game that's kind of like this. Uh, and you may have played it in the car with your kids. It, it's this, the question game where... You have a conversation back and forth, but you can only use questions. Have you ever played this game? You can only use questions. It's great when you're in a car ride to the Grand Canyon for six hours in the back seat. You're welcome, parents. Um, the king goes like this. You say, where are we going this year? Is it the same place we went last year? Right? And you answer back with questions. Uh, do you want to go to the place we went last year? Why do you keep asking me questions? I see, are you forgetting what we did last year? And you go like that until somebody breaks and they make a statement, and then you have to start over again. So... If you needed something to do in the car on the way home from church, now you have it. Um, this is kind of what the rabbis would do. They would ask each other questions about the law to, to expose the scriptures, to open up the scriptures. So they come to Jesus with a question. And they're, they're doing, the structure of this is important. The law says she should be stoned to death. What do you say? Right? So they, they've initiated a kind of conversation that he's familiar with. Now, Jesus is going to answer back, and Jesus answers back. He, he actually loses the game here because he doesn't answer with a question. He says, whichever of you is without sin, let that person cast the first stone. But there's an implied question. What's the implied question? Which one of you is that? Which one of you deserves to throw that first stone? It's a question for us. And then they begin to leave. And who leaves first? The older ones leave first. Why do the older ones leave first? Because older people sin more. That's right. They know how to do it. They've been around a long time. They've been practicing. They get really good at it. And they're sneaky about it. They're, they sin. <laughs> Just ask my mom and dad. They're usually here uh, on Sundays. Right now they're on vacation in New Orleans. What are they doing? Probably sinning. I don't know. But you ask them when they get back if that's what they were doing. Um, no, that's probably not why, right? Why, why do the older ones leave first? They leave first because they're probably more self-aware, right? They, they, probably, they probably get the implied question, and they know themselves better than younger people. Time will either make you self-aware or it will make you blind. Right? Time will either make you humble or it will make you blind. Hopefully, it makes us humble. But hopefully, through the, the seasons of life, the experiences of life, you realize you're not that great, and you don't deserve to throw rocks at other people. So Jesus asked that question back, and they, they begin to, the crowd begins to thin out. Verse 9, with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. 
is the best surprise in all of Jesus' teachings. The Pharisees got it wrong. The Pharisees did not recognize God standing in front of them because they had the wrong metaphor for God. For the Pharisees, God is like one thing. God is like a judge. God made the law. God sustains the law. God holds us up to the law, and he punishes us when we fail. The Pharisees are proud of themselves because they are law keepers. If they have to stand in front of a judge, they can prove themselves innocent, they think. But God is like a judge, and he's waiting to exact the law against us. Now, in the scriptures, the scriptures does, do call God a judge. God is our judge, and we will stand before him at the end of time. But in all the landscape of metaphors in the Bible, that one's not Jesus' favorite. There are metaphors through which we read the other metaphors. Just like when Jesus is asked, what's the most important teaching in the Bible? He singles out two of them. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the filters through which you see all the other teachings of the scriptures. In the same way, the judge is not Jesus' favorite metaphor. It's in there. But this is the judge who says to us, neither do I condemn you. You know what Jesus' favorite metaphor for God was? It's in his best parable. It's a, a story of a father with two sons. And the younger son says, give me my inheritance. I don't care that you're not dead yet. I want the money now. And then he goes and he takes his dad's money and he blows it on prostitutes and partying. And then when he is starving to death, when he has nothing left, it's only then that he thinks about going back and asking his dad for a job. And the dad sees him coming from the distance. The scripture says it's the father sees him coming from the distance, which means what? The father was waiting for him. The father was waiting at the window and, and wanting him to come home. And the father goes running out to the son. And before the son can even get the apology out of his mouth, the father throws his arms around his son and hugs him and takes him back home again. That is Jesus' metaphor for God. And if it doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you are not yet surprised by this passage the way you're supposed to be surprised by this passage. We worship a God who is the judge, who says to us, neither do I condemn you. And there are a lot of religious people in the churches in America who have not gotten this one yet. There are a lot of religious people in the churches in America who hold to the motto of the Pharisees, which was, throw stones first, ask questions later. The metaphor of, the, excuse me, the motto of followers of Jesus is supposed to be, hug first and ask questions later. The reason Christians have lost their voices in American society is because we lost our motto. We lost the heart of who we're supposed to be. The motto of Jesus was, you see this woman caught in adultery, the law clearly says she's supposed to be condemned. Neither do I condemn her. Hug first and ask questions later. The reason Christians have lost their voices in the modern university, particularly on subjects of human sexuality, is because for centuries we've joined the general public in throwing rocks at whatever minority people don't like. What would the church look like? If we built ourselves on the surprise teachings of Jesus, what if when somebody walks in the door, our first move is to say, we're not here to condemn you. We're here, we're here to love you first. We'll ask questions later. That was, that was the, the image that Jesus came to leave. And, and the only way to, to catch it is to look at metaphors in our world of people living the kind of love that Jesus had. I saw it once when I was on a mission trip in South Africa many years ago. Uh, I was down there and I met uh, this husband and wife who had moved there uh, and started working with children in South Africa. Their, their last name was Beale. It was the Beale family. And they were actually from, from Newport Beach. 
And they moved there because their daughter uh, had moved out there as a young woman uh, to do charity work. And in the, the racial tensions of apartheid, she was murdered. And her family started a foundation to raise money to care for kids in South Africa. And they, they moved out there and they op opened schools for kids. They opened a micro business. They opened a little bakery that, uh, that employed 30 people from the community so people would have jobs, they could make money, make a living, sell bread, create, create life in the economy there. And among the 30 employees that the Beals had, two of them were the men who murdered their daughter. And there is an incredible kind of grace that can look at someone who did that and say, my calling is to love anyway. Neither do I condemn you. I met the Beals when I was there in South Africa, and they were a, a changed people. It's only in, in knowing the surprise for giving love of Jesus that we can become love. That's the calling, that we would not be Pharisees, that we do not live the lives of the, the judge and the law keepers waiting to condemn society and keep the church pure. Our calling is to be the people who hug first and ask questions later. Not because God is not our judge, but because that's not the filter that Jesus used for the woman caught in adultery. If we're self-aware, we know that we have no right to throw rocks. And that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. I saw it again uh, in a woman uh, named Victoria Ruvolo, who lived in New York. This is a few years ago. This is in the news. Some of you have, have probably seen this. She, uh, she lived in New York, and there was... Um, this night where she was driving her car through the streets of New York and a, a, another car with a group of teenagers in it had uh, gone to the grocery store and just as kind of a joke, they had bought this big frozen 20 pound turkey because they wanted to use it like a bowling ball. And they were driving in their car and as they were passing her car, one of them hurled it out the window through her front windshield. It crushed her esophagus, it shattered her jaw, she had to have metal plates put in her, it, it damaged her brain. This 18-year-old boy faced 25 years in prison. It would, have, it would have ruined his life. His life would have been over. He would have spent his life behind bars, and by the time he got out, he would have been middle-aged, uh, probably uneducated, unemployable. It would have been the end of his life. And there in the courtroom, it was Victoria who pleaded for leniency, who begged the judge not to put him away. In the end, the boy served six months, and the judge told him, you are being given an extraordinary gift. Listen, that's the surprise love that Jesus has for all of us. And if you believe in him, if you believe that he died on the cross for you, any judgment that God would have had for you went to the cross. You don't get six months when you stand in front of Jesus. You get zero. Neither do I condemn you, is the greatest surprise teaching of Jesus. And for we who follow Jesus, that is our mission, to go out in the world loving as he loved. That's our mission. We are called to go out in the world and, and hug first and ask questions later. It's like this. When you get a, a, a text from a friend on your phone, you might think about the friend. You might think about the message. You very rarely think about what phone they used to send it to you. You very rarely get a text and go, I wonder if that was an iPhone or Android, right? That's not usually first thing on your mind. That's our calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to be like that phone. 
So much so that when people see you, when they meet you, when they see how you live your life, they think about the one who sent you and the message that you carry, but not so much about you. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to disappear behind the gospel and behind Jesus himself so that that's all the world sees. Jesus began parable after parable after parable with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like this. If, if I had to draw a picture of what heaven's like, it's like these things that he would compare it to. You and I are called to be metaphors for Jesus in this world. And for a follower of Jesus, the only right thing to do in the morning is to begin the day on your knees to pray, to surrender to Jesus, and to say, Jesus, I want the world to see you in me. And then as we go out into the world, our message to the world in the way we live our lives is, it's like this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way that you love us, that you fill us with your, your grace and your love that is, that is beyond a human capability. I thank you that you teach us to love the way that you love because you loved us first. May our hearts be filled with grace. May our hearts be filled with love. May we be the, the living illustration of the love that you have for a broken world. May we be a people who hug first and ask questions later and through us. May all the world come to know Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.